Well, good afternoon and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the what were you on? the Spreaker Radio Network. That's where we're at. <laughs> I keep forgetting the Spreaker Radio Network. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It is Thursday, December 15th, 2022. And uh, normally we're talking health, but on Thursdays, of course, we uh, depart from that and we talk about history and the Constitution and all kinds of neat stuff. And before we get to that, I just want to say that uh, check out the website, Your DIY yhealth.com y-o-u-r d-i-y like do it yourself health h-e-a-l-t-h your d-i-y-health.com and uh, check the website out there's all kinds of stuff there the main thing uh, right now is the nutritional stuff and the iTeraCare wand which we've got uh, there's all kinds of information at the top of the page we have a uh, holiday special going on where you can buy one wand for 350 and get a second for 150 uh, great savings but that ends I've got the official notice this morning it ends officially at uh, 11.59 p.m. on the 18th. And they said USA time. I guess they think that there's only one time zone in America or something, but uh, I don't know if it's Eastern, Central, Mountain, or Pacific. But the sooner you get it in, the sooner you'll be sure to get your uh, your order. So uh, take advantage of that. And if you have any questions, hit the Contact Me button, and we'll get you taken care of. But uh, that's a great thing. Uh, it's a fantastic deal. And uh, they are selling like hotcakes, over 13000 per day here just in the U.S. And, uh, Robert, I'm going to mute you because you're a little on the noisy side right now. <laughs> Got some stuff going in the background. Almost sounds like a toilet flushing. But uh, anyway, um, we're getting going with that stuff. And uh, just a lot of fun things going on. We're going to take off right now and go with uh we got mike and the rebel madman and cal and dw and we're going to be talking i believe about the necessary and proper clause today and those kind of things and how they pretty much enslaved us with the constitution but i'll just let uh, mike and you guys uh, go ahead and jump in and take over and let's see where we end up hey jim thank you buddy it's always great to be here um Actually, what we had uh, decided to do today was to not only the necessary and proper clause, which is a huge part of that, but we wanted to kind of parse the Constitution for all of the various uh, articles, clauses, and what have you, which provided the government with unlimited powers and the ability to call anything they did constitutional. Ooh, and they fun. put it right inside the document. I mean, they did this intentionally. And one of the things I learned years ago when I first got into this, and I was shocked to my core, believe me, when I first started, was that the Federalists needed a new Constitution for two reasons. Number one is they had controlled the Articles of Confederation for over five years. They had the majority in the sitting Congress. But that document was preventing them from doing and achieving exactly what they wanted. And what they wanted was the unlimited power of taxation. But they, the Articles of Confederation, Article 13, kept them from ever getting that. And they tried on multiple occasions to get that. And they couldn't get it through, and they knew as long as the Articles of Confederation was, were in place, they could not dominate and control the government. So then 
also the second thing they needed to do was during the revolution when Robert Morris and his conglomerate could establish the Bank of North America, these founders, as we call them, had stolen millions of dollars from the war chest. And they needed a way to cover that up. They knew that if the under the Articles of Confederation, they could all be tried and they would be in serious trouble if they were tried under the Articles of Confederation. So the Articles of Confederation had to be destroyed. Even though they were sent to Philadelphia, all of them with the explicit instructions to amend the Articles of Confederation. And many people don't know that under the Articles of Confederation, the Congress controlled by the Federalist had been given a list of amendments to consider since they wanted amendments. They refused to address them under the Articles of Confederation, which is an outright, outright I'm sorry, evidence of the fact that they intended to destroy the Articles of Confederation and not to amend them. They had the chance to amend them in the sitting Congress. There were provisions in the Articles of Confederation that really concerned them. Number one was term limits. Number two was immediate recall. And number three was the fact that no matter what scheme they tried to propagate before the American people, no matter what they had to do, it required 100% agreement by all the states. They could not allow that to continue. And so they had to create a new document. So when they went to uh, Philadelphia, and again, I want to reiterate that the legislature of the state of Pennsylvania issued an official document after the convention stating that because those delegates did not adhere to their orders from the state, Everything they did in Philadelphia was on their own. It was their own personal choice and did not represent the people of Pennsylvania. And I think we look, we overlook that. We don't think what that actually meant. They were acting on their own. They did not have the authority or the blessings of the people of the country. That to me is very, very, very telling but now they they went to work putting into the constitution and what we're going to deal with today is what they did with the writings to make sure that everything they did everything they did under that government would be considered constitutional so, in essence, we're going to look uh, primarily at three clauses in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, the power of unlimited taxation. With the power to charge whatever they wanted to in taxation, through whatever means, for whatever purpose, gave them totalitarian rule over the people. 
Because if you can take from the people anything you want at any time you want for any reason you want, it's absolutely asinine for the people to call themselves free. Because you're not. The second part of that was Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, which was the Necessary and Proper Clause, which, by the way, Patrick Henry stated would be the window through which all manners of evil would pass if it was adopted. And it was adopted. The Articles of, uh, we go to the Articles of Confederation, and then we look at you know, the move from that, we look at Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, the necessary and proper clause, and the implications of this are un unreal. And I got my old buddy Cal with me here. And Cal, would you be so kind as to go through what James Madison had to say about expressly delegated powers and the powers of implication during the debates in the first U.S. Congress. Would you do that, please, Cal? Yeah, I'll do it. You, gotta, you should give me notice. I'd have pulled that up, and I will find it, because I have the direct quote, and it comes from the annals of Congress. All right, where did I put it? I have too many notes sometimes. I've warned you about that. I know, I know. I'm so disorganized. When it... <laughs> ah, here we go. Oops, sir. Come here, come here, girl. There you are. We could not reload this message. Retry. Why could you not reload my own message? <laughs> ah, my buddies are messing be... with you, too. Yeah, they're messing with me today. I'm, I'm in my own email, and it won't let me read my own email. <laughs> well, hang on. It's going to get worse. Oh, man. Yeah, I... I can read everything else but that one right now. Well, let me so run it by them real right quick. Below. Real quick. You be looking. And here's the thing. When it was brought before the first Congress, Thomas Tudor Tucker from South Carolina wanted to put expressly before delegated powers to Congress. And James Madison fought him tooth and nail and said that no government can be held to the expressly delegated powers it has. It must have the power of implication, which in essence, people, I don't know how you read it. It's up to you, but it means that the Congress can do whatever the Dickens they want to do. All they have to do is to call it necessary or proper. And one of the first things that happened in the, uh, in the first administration was the Bank of the United States, which was proposed by Alexander Hamilton and was opposed by Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson said there are no provisions in the Constitution for a national bank. And Alexander Hamilton responded with, it is under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, the powers that are necessary and proper. And so it was brought in. Cal, are you ready to jump on it now, buddy? Yeah, we're going to do this old school. I couldn't get it to come up on my computer, but I'm going to pull out my my uh, my workbook I have on the amendments to the Constitution. I've got a, a whole workbook I created for myself on it. So I'm going to pull directly from this. And it's from August 18th, 1789, um, on the floor of the house. And <laughs> 
<coughs> the Congress is debating um, the uh, proposed amendments. And this one, it starts out on the motion being put, the proposition was carried. There's that meaning the eighth one. Just, now goes the ninth proposition. In the words following, what's considered the powers delegated by the states are reserved to the states, respectively. Now, this is where they're at in their discussion of what became the 10th Amendment. Mr. Tucker proposed to amend the proposition by prefixing to it all powers being derived from the people. He thought this a better place to make the assertion than the introductory clause of the Constitution where it similar expression had been proposed by the there, that, can you hear me? The yep. it had been proposed that those words were added to the preamble, but he, he goes on. He says he extended his motion also to add the word expressly so as to read the powers not expressly delegated to the Constitution. Mr. Madison objected to this amendment because it was impossible to confine a government to the exercise of express powers. There must necessarily be admitted powers by implication unless the Constitution descended to recount every minutiae. He remembered the word expressly had been moved in the Convention of Virginia by the opponents to the ratification, and after full and fair discussion was given up by them, and the system allowed to retain its present form. So that, that also addresses, you know, they say you're supposed to interpret the, the Constitution by what the states ratified it at. Well, apparently Virginia ratified it as uh, not express powers, but everybody keeps saying express powers. Where did this express powers in the Constitution idea come from? Who, whoever said it was? Mike? Am I still on? You're here. Okay. I just, I, <laughs> James Madison, the father of the Constitution, himself says that the powers are not expressly delegated. Uh, but you listen to the Tenth Amendment Center, all the constitutional conservatives, and all the parchment worshipers, they're all saying, well, these powers are expressly delegated. No, even James Madison says they're not. So when you take the necessary and proper clause, you know, the Congress shall have Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Well, one of those foregoing powers is to provide for the general welfare of the United States, which means that the Congress can make up whatever law it thinks is necessary and proper for the general welfare of the corporation. Because that's what the United States is, is a management asset management corporation set up for the banksters. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. Am I, am I hitting on enough cylinders here, Mike, to make sense? Yeah, uh, great job, uh, Cal. And one of the, uh, we've all heard, or at least I hope we've heard, of the Anti-Federalist Brutus, which was, uh, uh, by all accounts, most likely Robert Yates, who became the Chief Justice of the New York Supreme Court. But the, in his very first essay, number one, he addressed that necessary and proper clause. 
And he said, and I quote, how far the clause in the eighth section of the first article may operate to do away all idea of confederated states and to effect an entire consolidation of the whole into one general government, it is impossible to say. The powers given by this article are very general and comprehensive, and it may receive a construction to justify the passing of any law, a power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution all powers vested by the Constitution in the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof is a power very comprehensive and definite and may, for aught I know, be exercised in such a manner as entirely to abolish the state legislatures. Suppose the legislature of a state should pass a law to raise money to support their state government and to pay the state debt, may the Congress repeal this law because it may prevent the collection of a tax which they may think proper and necessary to lay to provide for the general welfare of the United States? For all laws made in pursuance of this Constitution are the supreme law of the land, Article 6, Clause 2, which we shall get to. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of the different states to the contrary notwithstanding. By such a law, the government of a particular state will be overturned at a single stroke and thereby be deprived of every means of its own support. And that is one from Brutus. And there were others who addressed the same thing in their anti-federalist message. I'm not going to read them all, but if you folks would like a reference, take a look at an old wig, number two. Look at Federal Farmer, number four, and again, Brutus, number one. But one of the things I think that is most telling about this, folks, is the admonition by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist number 33. And I would ask you to read that if you would in comparison with this. And in Federalist number 33, Alexander Hamilton specifically stated then it, when it comes to a government, the government should have the government is the first authority on what is and what is not necessary and proper. And the people are last. He states that in Federalist 33. And I am still totally amazed at the people who worship these Federalist papers when this was an instance of which Alexander Hamilton actually told the truth. You don't matter. The people are last. The government is first. And I still do not understand why people, well, yeah, I do. I understand because people have more things, more things they believe are important than actually studying their own history. Comments, Cal? <laughs> Well, I, I've gone from calling the necessary and proper clause to the implied powers clause, because that's that's where these implied powers come from. That's where the you know the, all that stuff between the lines that Jefferson couldn't see. That's where it's at, Mister Jefferson, right there. Our well, let's not section eight, clause eighteen. Well, let's <laughs> not right there. Let's not forget eighteen nineteen, in McCulloch v. Maryland. Chief Justice yeah. John Marshall said exactly that. 
<laughs> he made that statement from the Supreme Court that whatever they did that the government deemed necessary was therefore constitutional. And he was so, correct. And today's world where we people people go, oh, look at that. They're, what they're doing there, that's unconstitutional. No, it's not. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18. Article 6, Clause 2 gives the government the authority to do any darn thing they want to. And it is constitutional if they do so. So don't tell me about your Bill of Rights because the Tenth Amendment was destroyed with Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18. They didn't care if you wrote uh, the Tenth uh, Amendment because they already had a power in the Constitution to overthrow anything the states decided to do. And they weren't worried about it. Article 6, Clause 2 says anything the federal government does is supreme over any state. So there we are. DW, you got a comment, buddy? Well, I've been, I've been taking notes here. And in the last 20 minutes, you guys have committed at least 25 thought crimes. Okay. Exactly. Only 25? So, you guys got to step up your game. Cal, we got to ramp it up. Yeah, we got to try harder. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, well, it's about one a minute. It's about one a minute. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm i sitting here taking notes. I told you I was going to take notes because uh, you guys have the uh, – all the details. And uh, so I have a lot of thoughts. I, I don't really know where to go with them right now, Mike. So. Well, do you I'm have a question? Notes. We love questions. Do you have a question? I don't know. I've been too busy writing to think of a question. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you guys, you guys talk fast. Uh, and I got, I got to take shorthand. Uh no, honestly, I, I don't have, I, I really don't have, I, I, this is a rare occasion, but I really don't have anything to contribute at the moment. It's kind well, of. Well, let me Mike, uh, throw. Mike. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, just so people know, I put in the chat, um, I broke down Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 by intent to read it instead of just one clause, but by how it is actually interpreted by the government. You know, and it's broken down into seven sections. And, you know, it, this shows the powers. I mean, people say, well, they can only use the powers delegated to it in the Constitution. Well, they have the power to make whatever law they want to for whatever they think is for the best general welfare of the United States. Where is the limit on that? There's none. Well, I, I guess I do. I guess I do have something to say. It, it crossed my mind uh, earlier, uh, <clears throat> and this is the the the, cons the consequences of Governor Morris's uh, uh, <clears throat> arbitrarily, uh, uh, unilaterally uh, amending the preamble, <laughs> pre preamble preamble to the Constitution, with uh, claiming uh, their their mission statement was uh, power over the general welfare. And hmm. uh, that that's a wide open door. I mean, that's just, that can be anything that they think is necessary and proper. Right. So exactly. Uh, and uh, of course people will say the preamble 
uh, doesn't have anything to do with the the uh, the uh, authority. But uh, I I would they they use it when it serves their purpose that it does have authority, and then deny it when it uh, doesn't serve their purpose. And, ah, tip, uh, typical lawyers. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is uh, the the general welfare uh, statement in the preamble is uh, part of that window that all forms of evil have crawled through, and so that's that's my only. Uh, but general welfare appears in Article One, Section Eight, Clause One as well. DW. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It's it not, uh, see, certainly that's, does. That's where a lot of people get lost. They, they see that general welfare in the preamble. They think that's the only place it appears. No, it's right there in black and white. Uh, yeah. In Article it's, 1, Section it, 8, Clause 1. It's one of the powers delegated to it specifically. As few, and it's defined. It's few and one of those few and defined powers. They have the power to do whatever they think is necessary for the general welfare of the United States. And, you know, if, if you want to understand what United States, and again, that is a corporation. It is an asset management corporation set up by the Federalists on behalf of the Bank of England. So if you, if you <laughs> have a political body, if you have a political body of uh, government agents uh, who've been empowered by the Constitution under, under, that, uh, under that provision of uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, and uh, they have they have uh, democratic socialist and Marxist leanings, and they can interpret general welfare for whatever they mean, Me mean it to mean. Yeah, right. So well, here's here's a question: Did anybody see this for what it was in the ratification conventions? Uh, well, I'll go on a limb and say Patrick Henry would have called it out. Well, John he, Caroline. he did, but the one I would specifically like to mention here is none other than John Lansing Jr., who, along with Robert Yates, became at one point in his career chief justice of the New York Supreme Court. But he and Robert Yates left the Constitutional Convention in late July because and then they wrote a letter to the uh, uh, governor of New York telling him why they left. And in that letter, very eloquently said that we had to leave because we found that this convention was exceeding the powers which had been granted to us by our state. And therefore, we cannot continue because to do so would be to be violating the confidence of the people of the city of the state of New York. Well, now in the... Uh, ratification convention in New York, John Lansing made a motion that the state of New York insist that the following be added to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18. And I shall read it to you. It's very short. Provided that no power shall be exercised by Congress but such as is expressly given by this Constitution. Notice that word expressly again. And all others not necessarily given shall be reserved to the respective states to be by them 
exercised, unquote. Lansing saw it for what it was, and he knew what they were going to do with it. And again, the wonderful Alexander Hamilton said it was a mere tautology, that it meant nothing. Well, Hamilton, if it meant nothing, why did you insist in a letter to Rufus King in August of 1787 that it not be discussed until he arrived back in Philadelphia. Thoughts, DW? Cal? Yeah, I, you know, we Governor Morris takes all the credit for rewriting the Constitution or blame, however you want to look at it. And I think that was perfectly fine with Hamilton. But I think a lot of the changes, you know, uh, were mostly inspired and driven by Hamilton in the committee style. That's just my personal view of it. That's why Hamilton insisted that he be there. I think he was, I mean, not to take anything away from, you know, the intelligence of any of those on the committee style, because, you know, you got to admit they were all intelligent. But Hamilton, he was of a genius level above most others, and, and he just knew how to manipulate things like that. So, well, don't well, Governor uh, Morris gets the blame for it. I think, I think <clears throat> the ultimate driving force behind it was Hamilton. Well, don't forget for a moment that uh, the relationship between Governor, Governor Morris and Alexander Hamilton. Governor Morris delivered the eulogy at Hamilton's funeral. They were extremely close and had been for years. So when we look at your, your, uh, your thoughts and your ideas are very well uh, substantiated, Cal, in the fact that even though Gouverneur Morris may have written it, it was probably the idea of Hamilton. And again, the letter to Rufus King in late August proves that beyond, beyond any uh, uh, doubt in my mind. I mean, here he is. He's on the committee of style. He's the only delegate from New York. So New York didn't even have a quorum. New York State didn't even have a voice yet. There he is on the committee of style making the final draft. How does that work? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and uh, He, he when, should be uh, irrelevant now at the convention. Yeah, when, ha when uh, Lansing and uh, uh, Yates left, New York no longer had a representation at the convention. So why was Hamilton allowed to participate at all? Yeah. I mean, he wasn't allowed to vote, but he was allowed to be on the committee of style, the final draft. Really? Well, the final, the final records would always show that Hamilton voted, but it wasn't counted, but they always listed how he voted. So here's another thing with uh, the uh, in Jefferson's argument against necessary and proper, especially as it relates to the first bank of the United States. And I'm reading here from Jefferson's papers. And here is what he said. The bill for establishing a national bank undertakes, among other things, number one, to form the subscribers into a corporation. 
Number, number two, to enable them in their corporate capacities to receive grants of land and so far is against the, la the laws of Mortmain. To make alien subscribers capable of holding lands and so far is against the laws of alienage. So prior to this first bank of the United States, these people in England could not own, especially the bankers, could not hold or own lands in the U.S. And then he also listed to transmit these lands on the death of a proprietor to a certain line of successors and so far changes the course of descents to put the lands out of the reach of forfeiture or escheat and so far is against the laws of forfeiture and escheat to transmit personal chattels to successors in a certain line and so far is against the laws of distribution. I mean, I could go on. He, he, he went into great detail about his, the unconstitutionality of Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, and the U.S. Bank, the first U.S. Bank. He saw what was happening. He knew what was happening. Mike. Go ahead. How was, how was uh, under the uh, Treaty of Peace in Paris and uh, King George being the Prince of America, how was and and uh deserving of all of his profits from his investments there how else was he to receive his his payment of his profits without a a bank exactly and that leads me into the second part and i mean we're not going to desert the first part but it leads me into the second part the reason that these federalists knew they had to write a new constitution because they had ripped off the American public the, at the time of millions of dollars during the Revolutionary War. They had ripped off, they had stolen countless millions. And it was in their possession, especially one Robert Morris, who is alleged to have had $17 million as the chief financier that he had embezzled 17 dollars 17 million so here is the point is that they also knew and it, if you look at the various uh letters among the founders you will see this is the fact that they knew they had to write an entirely new constitution and put into that constitution the provisions that would prevent them from facing legal charges after the Constitution was uh, adopted by the people. So, and none other than Sentinel addressed this on multiple occasions that they put in, like, uh, you know, the various articles to protect them, like the uh, ex post facto law like Article 6, Clause 1, which made only the debts owed by the United States authentic. Anything owed to the United States was to be forgotten. They were simply covering their own backsides with the money they had stolen. 
and I know this just absolutely just scares people. You, you try to bring this up to most people. They don't have a clue what you're talking about. But the Constitution was written for two specific, specific purposes. Number one, to give unlimited power to the people in government with no restrictions whatsoever. And number two was to cover the crimes that had been committed during the revolution. Comments, please. No, those people in government are the asset managers for the Bank of England. Exactly. And I don't remember it was a DW or Murr I might have got it from. Um, a statement where it was either King George II or King George III fully admitted that he was not really the, the crown and the sovereign anymore, that the bank was. And I can't, DW, was that you that sent that to me? Yeah. Okay. I, I actually, uh, I, I mean, actually, that, that's, you that's can, so you key to understand. <laughs> you can, you can actually go at this very moment to the city of London's website that the square mile, not the, not the big city, but the little city of London, you can go to their website and, You'll you'll see that they make that comment that King George, there was a uh, a controversy between the disposition of uh, what's transpiring in the Americas and, and the uh, city of London, the, the the bank representatives of that time reminded King George who had won the glorious revolution of 1680. Hmm. And he, uh, he acceded to them. He stood down. Uh, this is, this is why, isn't it funny? Here we are in 2022 talking about events in, 1787-89 and then we find information about how things that happened in 1680 made a really big difference well i always so, love that old quote I, I, that old yeah. quote if i may i'm sorry sir didn't mean to step on you but uh, that quote popped into this old brain and i better say it before i forget it i love that old quote that history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes. Well, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And as, as I on occasion have been known to say, we, we, we three anyway, and, and there's others, but we, we examine this history with a microscope so we can turn it around and use it as a telescope. Oh, and, that, uh, yeah. So that we can put that can, on a T-shirt. See those patterns. We can see those patterns, and and know what the play is, and that's what we're doing when we study history is recognizing patterns, and uh, uh, because I mean, isn't isn't that one of the things that you know? Uh, almost everybody would commonly say, "Boy, I'd really like to know what's going to happen." You know, boy, if we only knew what was going to happen. Well, <laughs> study history. <laughs> well, I got a question, guys. If uh, 
if that is not applicable to today's world, why do college football coaches study game films of their opponents? Know thine enemy. Well, I'm Sue. They, 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 they know that past performance predicts future behavior, and they also get paid millions of dollars to do it. <laughs> but uh, this is, you know, we're, all we're doing here is examining history's credentials. We're looking at their resume is all we're doing here. All right. So uh, anyway. Well, guys, one of the things here. Oh, does someone have a comment? I'm sorry. No, just go on. More, more, more stuff. Go forward. Okay. Yes. One of the things that really interested me about this, and this is something that most people haven't looked into, to my knowledge, but I find it just absolutely intriguing, was when. 1832, when President Andrew Jackson vetoed the U.S. Bank, even though John Marshall and the Supreme Court had ruled it constitutional. Now, I would probably wonder how many people in this group have ever read Andrew Jackson's veto message. No, not I. <clears throat> But that is something to me that I, I just really like what he said. And I'll read the first paragraph. And it is, he says, it is maintained by the advocates of the bank that its constitutionality and all its features ought to be considered as settled by precedent and by the decision, recent decision of the Supreme Court. To this conclusion, I cannot and will not assent. Mere precedent is a dangerous source of authority and should not be regarded as deciding questions of constitutional power except where the acquiescence of the people and the states are considered as well. That is one heck of a statement, people. He is saying that the yeah. courts should not ever depend on precedent unless the people agree. And, of course, we know well, that's he, never uh, going to happen. What year was this, Mike? Andrew. 1832. Okay. In, in, uh, in that one paragraph right there, Andrew Jackson just shot down the absolute, the absolute legitimacy of this thing called stere decisis, which uh, Ex lawyers exactly. always fall back on. Oh yes, back on already as, decided. As already decided. Uh, decided law. Well, Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson uh, shuts it down. Says, "Well, we got to put this in context." So uh, he also, uh, in this in this battle with the bank and with the Supreme Court and with the Congress. When, when they ruled on this decision, and I'm going to paraphrase this, he says, well, okay, you can, you can make whatever decision you want. Try enforcing it. Yeah, Remember he did. That? Yeah, that's, and yeah. that's in here. Uh, that's in the statement. And uh, if oh, I okay. may, let me, let me consider, continue with that first paragraph. 
And he says, so far from this being the case on this subject, an argument against the bank might be based on precedent. One, Congress in 1791 decided in favor of a bank. But in 1811, Congress decided against it. One Congress in 1815 decided against a bank. Another in 1816 decided in its favor. Prior to the present Congress, therefore, the precedents drawn from that source are equal. If we resort to the states, the expressions of legislative, judicial, and executive opinions against the bank have been probably to those in its favor. But there is nothing in precedent, therefore, which, if its authority were admitted, ought to weigh in favor of the act before me. If the opinion of the Supreme Court covered the whole ground of this act, it ought not to control the coordinate authorities of this government. Hallelujah. What a wonderful statement. The Congress, the executive, and the court must each for itself be guided by its own opinion of the Constitution. Each, guys, listen to this. this. I love this. Each public officer who takes an oath to support the Constitution swears that he will support it as he understands it and not as it is understood by others. It, it is as much the duty of the House of Representatives, of the Senate, and of the President to decide upon the constitutionality of any bill or resolution which may be presented to them for passage or approval as it is of the Supreme Judges when it may be brought before them for a judicial decision. The opinion of the judges has no more authority over Congress than the opinion of Congress has over judges. And on that point, the president is independent of both. The authority of the Supreme Court must not, therefore, be permitted to control the Congress or the executive when acting in their legislative capacities, but to have only such influence as the force of their reasoning may deserve. Folks, I don't know how <laughs> what you think of that paragraph, but that is a killer paragraph. Mm. How, uh, especially well, as it as it goes for precedent. But he's saying well, that the Congress well, can interpret the Constitution on how they want to interpret the Constitution according to their own mind. Isn't that what he just said? Yep, that's what he said. Which, which means they can make it up as they go. Exactly. So, so that goes right back to the whole mean, thing. It can mean this to me today, but tomorrow, because my viewpoint changed, it can mean something totally different. So there is no solid foundation. No. There is there is no solid foundation. And uh, that thing about precedent, though, is the scary part, because precedent means that because somebody decided something, already decided, stare decisis, something which has already been decided should not be considered again. That is scary, guys. Hmm. Well, whether whether or not he he realized it or not, he was part of his language evokes the uh, doctrine of the lesser magistrates hmm. or the balance of powers, and um, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates comes out of Martin Luther in uh, Germany around 1520. Well, 
right after that. And uh, it's called the Madderberg Confession, where they all had to use their own conscience. Now, so in, in all these different institutions using their own interpretation and conscience, then, then they have to come to some kind of reconciliation of that. Uh, otherwise, you have a constitutional crisis, right? Um, and and uh, there is a process for that. But the thing that it omits is what are the agendas, uh, objectives, and in the intents of these different institutions? And then the other one single primary question that lubricates what direction it'll go in is money. And so there's uh, assumptions built into this uh, parchment worship is that it's uh, being interpreted and applied by virtuous men uh, with uh, righteous hearts. And that is a self-deception from the beginning we we know in fact that is a uh, if you was to believe that you would be deceiving yourself so uh one last one last comment on this is i don't know if anybody how many other people here realize this but when he when he makes these statements and writes this he's firing he's he's laying down the foundation for the civil war Yes, most definitely, and that is what prompted the Marxist, and especially the Marxist in the Bank of England, to decide to begin to lay the groundwork for the Civil War. It took them 20-some years to bring it out, but they finally were able to do so. But one of the things I wanted to throw in, uh, and especially I want to throw this snowball at you, Cal, and that is, as I have called James Madison in the past, the uh, Bill Clinton of the founding era, because he could change his mind more than anyone I've ever seen in history. But would you believe in a letter to Spencer Roan in 1819, after he had said that the Congress must have the powers of implication, he takes it all back. And he said, uh, let me see if I can find it exactly. Uh, in the case of McCulloch against the state of Maryland, I have found the judge's laudatory mode of expounding the Constitution combated in them with the ability and the force which were to be expected. It appears to me, as it does to you, that the occasion did not call for the general and abstract doctrine interwoven with the decision of the particular case. Well, these darn lawyers, why can't they just talk in normal language? I have always supposed that the meaning of law, or for a like reason of a constitution, so far as it depends on judicial interpretation, was to result from a course of particular decisions and not these from a previous and abstract comment on the subject. The example in this instance tends to reverse the rule and to forego the illustration to be derived from a series of cases actually occurring for adjudication. Now, that is a quite long letter, but uh, for
For those of you who are unaware, Spencer Roan, one of those what ifs in history, Spencer Roan was Patrick Henry's son-in-law. He married Patrick Henry's oldest daughter, and he was the chief judge of the state of Virginia at this time. But in 1800, after Thomas Jefferson had been elected president, his plans were to make Spencer Roan chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. But unfortunately, John Adams, anticipating his move, appointed John Marshall, his secretary of state, to the position the day he left office because he knew Jefferson couldn't change it then. So if we think politicians and political chicanery only occurs now, we are far off. These people, these people we call founders, these people we call framers are absolutely no different than the politicians of today. The only thing different is their names. Thoughts, please? The 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 art of conology is uh is very sophisticated and well rehearsed. Uh so uh there's there's no irony. There's no irony in that right out of the gate, Marshall and Marbury versus Madison says, Well, we can have the Constitution mean whatever we want it to mean. <laughs> you know, that's <clears throat> that was the takeaway I get from that case. Subject yeah, to subject to, to judicial review. Everything is subject to the court's review. And ironically, and I, I got involved in a discussion of lawyers about Marbury v. Madison, because if you go to law school, that's one of the first cases they ever really discuss. And so my contention is, is that John Marshall should have recused himself from that case because he was the Secretary of State who did not deliver the appointment to the courts that was sent to Marbury. He didn't deliver it. So then Marbury wants his position when Jefferson takes office, so he sues the government to get his federal judgeship, which had been given by Adams and not delivered by Marshall. So they make a case of this, and then Marshall rules that everything is subject to judicial review, which wasn't even a contention in the case. He used the case to create law out of whole cloth. <clears throat> well, he had read the Constitution, and he thought it was necessary and proper. Uh, you guys know what but, uh, what one of the funniest things to me about John Marshall is. No why. Have any of you ever actually seen his gravesite? No. No. It's in Kentucky. Of course, at that time it was part of Virginia. But he is buried beside his wife. His wife passed away first. And Marshall, in essence, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have the correct words. I remember looking at it and I was just stunned 
but on his wife's side, she pair, she passed away first and he put on her headstone, although she wasn't very good looking. And then he went on to talk about her attributes, but he led with, although she wasn't that good looking. Who does that to their dead wife? <laughs> That's that, that one has always struck me. If you folks ever get the opportunity uh, to uh, go to the, uh, it's, it's a beautiful place that uh, uh, graveyard. It's one that I had to go to because right across from John Marshall and his father and his wife, right across from them is John C. Breckinridge, who was vice president and then joined the Confederacy in what was called the Orphan Brigade and fought for the Confederacy. And John C. Breckinridge's wife, when Lincoln invaded Kentucky, they took Breckinridge's wife to the border of Kentucky and Tennessee and told her, keep walking. Mm. Comments, guys? Well, I don't, I don't know where the last hour has gone to, Mike. Uh, oh, goodness. I didn't realize it had slipped by. by that quick either. It flew by. I, uh, uh, what was that? Uh, was that on RBN last week? Uh, was that Saturday when you went into uh, Kentucky? Uh, that would be correct, sir. About, yeah, yeah. That's a, <clears throat> that's a really good show. A uh, lot of lot of really good information in there. I had just had no. It was I had never heard that anywhere that Kentucky what, had been so rebellious up until nineteen was was seventy four seventy six or they seventy six and what was it that they had not recognized the amended thirteenth and fourteenth amendment until that time. They did not ratify the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment until 1976. Had you ever heard that before, Cal? No, no. That, that, that just comes... There is a, there yeah, is a statement. Is, yeah. There is a statement among, among some of the, and it really intrigued me. I knew a guy from Kentucky back years ago in all places as NSA. And he, he made the comment and it always intrigued me. He, he just floored me when I said we were talking about the South naturally. And he said, well, how many people know that Kentucky seceded after the civil war? <laughs> and in essence, when you look at it, it's true. If you go to almost any office, especially in Lexington, and Frankfurt, which is the capital. If you go to some of their official office buildings, I don't know how they're going to deal with all this tearing down monuments and stuff, because if you go into the Supreme Court to file a case in Kentucky, the statue, I mean, not the statue, but the painting on the wall is of John C. Breckinridge of the Confederacy. And when I was traveling through heading up to Iowa a couple of a year or so ago to uh, see my son, I noticed more Confederate flags flying in Kentucky than I did any other state. 
Well, they uh, they keep that off the radar, don't they? They don't even they don't they don't even bring that out. No, I mean, because Bubas yeah. is not going to see that watching the halftime celebrations of a football game. So they don't, you know, they're not bringing it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh, well, guys, you, know, you, you hit it. Yeah, entertainment. You, yeah, everybody, no one want. what was it? Emma, uh, Emma Goldman said, Americans do not want to be free. They want to be entertained. And boy, is did she nail that back in the 1930s, almost 100 years ago. Well, guys, we have gone through the first hour and we have some folks here with us. And uh, I, I really want to see what they might have to add or any questions they might have to what we've said so far, or maybe we didn't cover it well enough. I'll leave that up to you folks in the audience here. We are set and ready to entertain any questions or ideas you might have. Why Jump in, guys. After the war? Pardon me? You said Kentucky seceded after the Civil War. Well, that, Robert, uh, if you uh, will listen to the entire comment, I had a friend of mine tell me we seceded after the war. Oh. And there is no, there's no, there's no official record of any, of Kentucky seceding after the war. There is that, that's not there. But by oh, okay. actions, by actions, they seceded after the war. I see, metaphorically. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, and anyone else? That, you know, they, uh, Go ahead, Robert. Uh, real quick, they took down the last uh, Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond the other day. The very last. It's down now. The well, they, they also took down the monument to Ambrose Powell Hill, A.P. Hill, and they not only took it down, but they dug up his grave. Oh, they people, did take it down. Yeah, if you people want to see what you're dealing with here when it comes to Nathan Bedford Forrest and A.P. Hill and the fact that they not only will tear down their monuments, but they will dig up their graves, it, it, it's a federal crime to desecrate a grave. You would think so. But it didn't slow them down, huh? No, no, because they have they have the acquiescence of a pure, full-blown Marxist government, and that's on both sides of the political aisle, people. And yeah. if you're ever going to send yeah. me anything where you're going to start blaming the Democrats, don't waste your time, because right. I will throw you, I will throw you back so many usurpations of the Constitution by Republicans, I'll make you dizzy. I promise. And how many people know, and I did an official check on this, how many people know that more Republicans have been charged with child molestation while in public office than Democrats? I knew that. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So yeah, comments, uh, please, folks. Don't spend any don't spend any time looking into the Franklin cover-up and and George Papa Bush. Don't look uh, into that. I'd like to know what happened to our moral society. It seems like it's turned into a municipal society. Well, William, uh, I'm going to take you back to 1787 when we adopted, through the Constitution, a purely socialist form of government. Apparently, sir, it seems like what's happened is they've spun a web with built-in uh, legal escape clauses 
so they can avoid uh, liability and uh, gain more power. Well, William, here's here's the question I ask so many people. That's a very astute statement, sir. But here's one of the things I ask people. When, if the Supreme Court issues a decision, where can you appeal that? If the people Legal, can, if the people can, lawfully. <laughs> well, either either one. If the people cannot appeal a decision of their government, the people are serfs. They have no authority. If you can't appeal There's, what the government says is law, there there is no. You have nothing. You are a servant to that government. Exactly. Yeah. The Good the point. only appeal that you could have would be to your creator. Yes. And, uh, nat natural law uh, reigns uh, ultimately. So. Yeah. The only thing is, is government doesn't recognize natural law. No. That's that's when we have to take it into consideration. Well, but so uh, William Section uh, Six, Clause Two says it: the government yeah. is supreme, not natural law. We're, we're not, quit, quit thinking that your rights are supreme. The Article Six says otherwise. Yeah, you Article Six. You get to choose, people. You can choose your natural rights, your God-given natural rights, or you can choose a constitution. One or the other is supreme. Choose your master. But the problem is, Cal, is that the majority of this people in this country, you and I encounter them on a daily basis who tell us, I just had this guy two days ago on Facebook tell me that the Constitution was beautiful. It did everything it was supposed to do until that Abraham Lincoln came along. He's kind of right about mm -hmm. that. He did do everything he's supposed to do. So he's kind of, in a weird way, he's kind of right. How, Robert? How? The first three major defeats against the Constitution were done by George Washington. The theory of the Constitution. <laughs> People are operating on this theory that the Constitution, heck, I put it in the chat. Where'd it go? Morally and theoretically, the purpose of a Constitution is to secure the rightful liberty and restrict government. The federal Constitution, however, is legally and actually an instrument of implied powers and tyranny. It was designed that way. We just went through the three. In. We we just went through the three few defined powers, as Madison put in forty five, that did that. That's why I call Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eighteen, not the necessary and proper clause, but the implied powers clause. That's where all manner of evil is, as uh, Patrick Henry said, will enter. Well, Robert, here's here's something. You know, you said that that was pretty much true. Well, let me throw a couple of things at you. Okay. Number one, the Judicial Act of 1789, totally unconstitutional. George Washington yeah. was told by uh, Thomas Jefferson. He was even told by James Madison that it was unconstitutional. He did it anyway. He did. The, U the U.S. Bank. And what did the uh, what did uh, the Judicial Act of 1789 do? It gave the Supreme Court the power they have now. Yeah pretty much override anything. Okay, the second thing Washington did, even though he was told it was unconstitutional by his attorney general, by Madison and by Jefferson, was to sign the U.S. Bank into law. Totally unconstitutional. Then he invaded this, got a, raised an army of thousands more than he had under the uh, Revolutionary Army, he and Hamilton raised an army. He made Hamilton Major General 
of that army, and they invaded Pennsylvania to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. Totally unconstitutional. He was told it was unconstitutional by the Chief Justice, by his Attorney General, and by uh, both Washington, I mean, uh, Jefferson and Madison, and he did it anyway. And then here's the thing is that Abraham Lincoln pointed to that invasion of Pennsylvania to justify his invasion of the South to collect a tax. So how in the Dickens can you say the Constitution was fine to Lincoln? How much did it restrict Washington? And he helped write the darn thing. Well, Abraham Lincoln was just using precedent. Precedent of the presidents. Precedent of the presidents. Uh, I'm going to... So, so we we have we have we have two things going on here. We have the the the, uh, the the pretense of what the Constitution was espoused to be, and then we have this other side of this coin and the relationship of men and women and people uh, to it. And so we have this relationship uh, that we have to. We almost have to look at them both at the same time uh, and, and do it objectively. We have to objectively look at both of these at the same time. And, and, and by objective, I mean we try to look at the, if, there, if there's coherency or contradiction. And, and people that, uh, men and women who make these, uh, uh, these uh, claims about the uh, virtues of the Constitution, in spite of the evidence that they see before them, have either consciously uh, overlooking this or they're too immature to do it. To do it objectively, to to weigh the evidence of what was said and what's been observed. And <clears throat> so with that, having made that little uh, blather, I'm going to I'm going to bring up something that uh, is going to make you mad, Mike. And I'm not I'm not I'm not validating it by bringing it up. I, I don't agree with it, but I want to I want to bring it out because it you're told in black and white by the crime syndicate. Uh, your relationship to it, your relationship to it. OK, in their own words, in. Amendment 14, Section 1, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject. So all persons born or naturalized in the United States is a U.S. citizen, and it says you're subject. Subject. If you're a citizen, I I just want to break this because this word term was used earlier, citizen. Your subject. You're no different than the subjects of the monarchy of Britain. They're subjects. They're subject citizens. And and you that claim that claim that the veracity of this this thing called the Constitution, your citizens subjects. Is there a difference? I, I mean I rest. No, I concur completely, DW. Well, let me uh, throw that, that, a little that's bit. That's of... part of the scam. That's part of the scam that's been going on. 
Like I say, it's a corporation. You are an asset in it. You, by claiming to be a citizen, you're claiming to be a subject, a subject of the corporation. In other words, you're just another piece of equipment to them, so to speak. And, and that's, that's just it. A citizen, look it up. Look up citizen. And one of the definitions is, is it similar to a subject? The Supreme Court has already ruled on it in the white, in the Y. Kim Locke decision or something like that, one of those decisions. And they go through what a citizen actually is. And they specifically state that a citizen is analogous to a subject. If you are a subject, that means you have a sovereign over you, whether it be a monarch or this government or whatever. But if you are not your own sovereign, you are not free, period. How much more clear can you explain that? Well, so I've got a question. To be a citizen of anything, you are not free. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. I got a question for both of you. Please provide me all the evidence you can that the people of the United States were not subjects under the Constitution of 1787. Or not? Yeah, tell me that the people under the Constitution before the 14th Amendment, I've heard the 14th Amendment till I'm sick of it. It was yeah. never properly ratified. It means nothing, but people keep referencing it all the time. Tell me, show me the proof that the people of this country were not subjects to the government under the Constitution. No, they were. That's what Article 1, Section 8. Well, it's never says. changed. It's never changed. The 14th Amendment is irrelevant. It just clarified it, basically. Well, it, it made a statement. It put it in black. Yeah, it made a statement of, a, of an obvious fact, a pre-observed fact. It, but it, what it does it, is it, it changed the perception it. in man's mind, in the people's mind. Before that, they thought they were subjects of their state. Not said, you know, okay. Let's well, just the, use the word subject instead of citizen. The Constitution of 1787 made everyone, if you are subject to unlimited taxation, if the government is your boss, regardless of whatever you do, if the government can do any darn thing they want to, you are a subject. Forget the Fourteenth well, Amendment; they were subjects. Exactly. For, they it, were subject from the beginning. It, it's not my intent to validate the Fourteenth Amendment by any means. It's to show to the people that are listening and will hear this the contradictions. That's it's just simply for them to where they're at so they can bridge that gap. That's, that's the only reason. Well, I understand is, DW, but I, so, I, you know, I've, I've heard this 14th amendment BS for the last 30 years and the 14th amendment didn't do a darn thing that wasn't done with the constitution. Nothing. Well, all you have to use your example, Mike, all you have to do to, um, uh, Give uh, legitimacy to what you're saying is uh, tell me about the uh, tell me about the working men and women in Pennsylvania during the whiskey rebellion. Were they subject? Yeah. They were subject. Well, they were unconstitutionally invaded by their own government. But there is no unconstitutional matter. Well, exactly, but if they decided we decided that it was best for the for the United right. States that they invade them. 
So the Constitution in Article 4, Section 4 says that the federal government cannot enter a state to put down a rebellion or a disturbance unless requested to by the legislature and the governor. The legislature, if it's in session, or the governor, if it's not in session, it's pretty plain. And yet it was totally ignored, which means that, again, that George Washington set out in the pattern to say, I don't give a what your laws say. I don't care what the Constitution says. Here's what we're doing. We're going to do what we feel is necessary and proper for yes, the general because, welfare of the United States. Because we are supreme. Can I interject custom and usage? Sure. Well, that's that's their, their uh, ace in the hole, I guess. Well, it, the thing that really troubles me is if you don't know what's making you sick, you can never cure yourself. If you keep dipping your hand in the poison that will eventually kill you, and you believe that that poison is, in fact, a good thing, you know, there's almost, a, you get to the point to say you deserve what you get. The Constitution was rotten from from June of 1788 when it was first when it was ratified by the ninth state. It's been rotten. It's been controlling everything the government has done to destroy freedom and liberty has been done under the Constitution. Michael, and, sir, go ahead. Yeah, it. it you know they. Uh... As you said, uh, they they argued about whether they uh, and a lot of them felt they should have a king. But I think what they all agreed upon is maybe not one king, but maybe several kings. <laughs> well, if you go back to the Constitutional Convention itself to June 18th and listen to uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, Pratt on for five hours where he endorsed a monarchy. And then we look, and then, you know, of all things, James Madison goes, oh, no, he let the cat out of the bag. That's what they were there to do to create a monarchy. They didn't care what name they had to put on it. They didn't care what color they had to paint it. They didn't care what shoes it had to wear. That was, in, that was immaterial. They had to create a constitution that could give them power and authority over the people regardless and a constitution which would absolve them of the crimes they had committed against the people of the country. That's why we okay. have a constitution. So, Jump into the future. So, uh, go ahead, Brent. If I might, if I might add, yeah. isn't this making hay for the new state's constitution, which is far worse? Hmm. Uh, did someone just put up what article was it enslave the people? Article one, section eight, clause eighteen, enslaved everyone. If you, clause one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> article one, section eight, clause uh, clause one. I'm sorry. It enslaved the people by it said. Thanks, Cal. It enslaved the people, and said, "You, whatever you own, whatever you have, is ours at our discretion." I don't know how people can overlook that. Well, uh, um, I have a couple things here. Uh, it's kind of a quinky dink. Uh, Mirka had sent me a, uh, 
a uh, something in an email today, and it's a table of the British regnal years of the kings of the monarchy, starting in 1066 with uh, William, William the Conqueror. And I see if I go to online and I type in the presidents of the United States from 1789 going forward there, I all what I see is I see I have a table of the British regnal years, which are kings and sovereigns. And then when I look at the United States presidents, I see many kings. I see a corporate monarchy and and their sovereign or the corporation they represent is sovereign well Did, didn't didn't I, jefferson just, say yeah didn't jefferson say explicitly yeah. that with the bank of the united states the government became a corporation yes and i took i took note of that i uh I actually think, Mike, that I, I really need to get my hands on that full text of his comments there when he wrote the he wrote about the law of alienage and uh, and so on and so forth. I'm that really perked up my ears. I, I hope it did some other people in here because there's some bright people here. The law of alienage. Exactly. And, uh, a lineage. And mm -hmm. uh uh, contract and uh, so on and so forth. So, I'm I'm just trying to draw some some conceptual parallels here between uh, what how what words are used or how they're rebranded or how they're you uh, what they're said to be, but but then objectively look at the contradictions to not what you think they mean, but how they've been used and employed throughout their entirety and then and then you can decide whether or not at that point if you're mature if you've used maturity and objectivity and intelligence to reach an unbiased conclusion well and, dw uh, no go ahead i'm sorry i i'm just saying that i'm just saying give it give yourself the opportunity to do that and uh, <clears throat> instead of just listening to what you want to hear and believe, can you, can you be critical? And, uh, so a lot of people in the, uh, patriotic Republican, uh, Christian, uh, what, however you want to identify yourself on that category, criticize are very critical and criticize the people who call themselves on the left side of the spectrum, incapable of critical thinking. So my direct unabashed challenge to you is, are you capable of what you're challenging somebody else to do? Can you do it? Well, you know, DW, uh, uh, here, and, and, you know, you and I have yeah. talked about this many times, and I firmly believe, and I've said this over and over and over again, and you don't have to agree with me. I don't care if people agree with me or not. I, I would just like for them to prove me false. And all of this stuff in my lifetime over the past two or three decades of this 14th Amendment stuff is nothing but mental masturbation. Because mm. it was crooked before it started. 
the 14th Amendment comes along and it codifies it, but it just says, okay, it's okay. I've, I've beaten you down. You're nothing but a slave. And here I will add to it with another phrase. And even if it's not ratified or not, we have to acknowledge that. I, I'm really upset with the people who will acknowledge a document from government that was illegal and make decisions on a document that was illegal and make decisions moving forward on something that was never even ratified. It's a side trail. It's a rabbit trail to get you away from the central theme. And the fact is that you were a subject before as soon as the Constitution was written, you were a subject, and you are a subject today. It doesn't make any difference about any amendment, the first through the 23rd or whatever. It makes no difference what the amendments are. They're ignored. And the three things we're talking about with the uh, parts that were put into the Constitution to give unlimited power to the government— those things were put there, and it started in 1787. It did not start in 1865 with an amendment, proposed amendment to the Constitution. It was rotten from day one. And until we as a people, especially the people who are like-minded, until we understand that and quit running off on pig trails that lead us to nowhere, all you do is you go around and around in a circle and you accomplish nothing. Yeah, just me, just well, me. I uh, uh, no, no big surprise here. I agree with that, and which is why I challenge people to do these things, so that in good conscience, you you know what you're about. And uh, I have, I don't have any fundamental issues with the spoken intent of what. Uh, a lot of people would say they would like their country to be and what they would like to be a part of. I would just say you need to understand this so that you can be a part of making the mythology of what it was said it was supposed to be into a reality. So that's the challenge. Can you Can you accept that you know, it is a mythology so that you're not captured by it, so that uh, you don't participate with those agents. Uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's kind of just, just my opinion, but uh, we're, it, it can't be reformed. You know, I reached that conclusion a long time ago myself. It's not reformable. Uh, you can't fix that would, which was intended yeah. to be broken. Yeah, and uh, you, you, it's it's impossible to start off wrong and end up right. You you can't make the cro a crooked stick straight. Okay, <laughs> uh, so you know, and, but that's where we're at, and uh, I think it really does overwhelm people when they when they when they take that into consideration. You know, in that quiet moment when they're thinking about this and they go, what if these these wacky guys have actually got something? At that point, it becomes overwhelming. At that point, it takes moral courage. And, um, you know, 
so you know the challenge to people are 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 you do you have the capacity and the moral character the virtue and the righteousness and the courage of your convictions to chat to bring this mythology into reality that's that's a that's a pretty scary thought so yeah anyway uh, cal uh, what one thing that's probably for sure is you sure as heck haven't gotten any better from the beginning and it's got getting nothing but worse but how it got there uh, and i don't want to piss you off mike about the 14th amendment but prior to the 14th amendment how much in law was the word resident used if if you know well the point of it is is that is a word and any time and again i don't mean to sound blunt or obtuse here but the point is is that when the judiciary of the united states can decide what, what words mean i don't give a what word you use because they are the final arbiters of the word you aren't we aren't the people aren't but the courts yeah. are they are the final arbiters of meanings mm. and definitions of words okay well, well the reason so i brought it up michael is is that the um stamper is saying in his book that if you have a landmass with a people calling themselves residents and citizens, you don't have a nation. Yeah, Mur, we can hear it's you. It's working, Mur. Who's everyone? We're all here. Where are you? But she's, I understand. I, to I totally understand what you're saying, Samuel. I do that. But the point is, is that, and this is one of the reasons that I am beginning to lose my patience, is because time's running out. I'm standing watching a country slowly and well, slowly up to a point. It is accelerating every day to where this country is destroying itself. And I've got people running down pig trails pointing to this word or that amendment, which was never ratified. And, that, you know, what do they call that? Uh, Nero was uh, playing while Rome burned. Fiddling. How many he was fiddling. Uh, fiddling. How many well, Neros do we need to watch this country just totally collapse? Well, uh, before uh, this is this is a great conversation, by the way, <laughs> I, I'm loving this. Uh, I just want to point out uh, what I've observed a lot of people do because I've done it myself is in the past. I did it and what I'm observing people do at the very present at this very moment uh, is they they keep constantly grabbing at grasping at straws and backing up to a point where they said it was okay okay if we just went back to this or if we just went back to that or if we in, in relationship to this constitution great observation. if we just went back to here it, it would be it would be okay and they they keep trying they they they're they're in denial they're they and uh some of them are just ignorant, but others are consciously in active, willful denial, trying to back into it. And they'll they'll never find that point where their their mental and 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 where their courage gets traction. They'll never find that point. It's because it's not there. 
Now that's my conclusion. You'll have to reach your own, but to talk, the clock is ticking. Well, can I, is the goal to save the country or to secure rightful liberty? Because what if this country, which, you know, is dominated by this federal government, deserves to collapse in order for rightful liberty to regain its rightful place? But, Cal, please. In, in rightful me, liberty, could this country exist? Cal, you just it made, is now. Cal, you just made my point for me. The people who are looking for the magic bean want to preserve the country. They don't care about I want rightful, to secure liberty. rightful liberty. Exactly. Well, it, it goes. It but goes once back that perspective to, changes, it, things will fix themselves. Oh, <laughs> you, 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 you have to ask that question, and Cal did. What is your objective and intent? And you never hear anybody. Uh, claim that you never hear a claim on what the objective intent is. It's all a bunch of gobbledygook. They never, they never clearly state what the principle and the objective is. What's the destination? They never say it. Cal, DW, and others. I got a question for you. When you guys were growing up, did your parents, your grandparents, your friends, somebody in the family? ever do that thing where they wave their hand over here and say, look here, and then they hit you in the head with your other hand? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you ever, yeah. did you ever have, I, I know my grandfather used to do that to me when I was young. Look here. Doo -doo -doo -doo. And then he would, you know, it didn't hit me hard. It was just a, a tap. But that's exactly the analogy of what we're doing today. In this, in this country is that people are going, Oh, look over here. Here is a word. Here is an amendment. Here is something. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Why the government clobbers you in the side of the head. Well, they're, I like to call it they're, they're majoring in the minors. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, another, another <clears throat> I'll, I'll pull up a little aviation uh, phrase I used to use. Uh, they're... Um, uh, when when I was dealing with training pilots, because this would happen all the time, particularly when they were overwhelmed, particularly when things were stressful. Uh, one of the common mistakes, particularly from the really intelligent ones, the really good ones, one of their common problems was analysis paralysis. They would mm -hmm. overanalyze it, yeah. unable to make decision and take actions and in an aircraft you have to always make decisions and here's the key they all have to be accomplished in a timely manner okay and <clears throat> so you know the clock is ticking and you have to make objective accurate critical decisions and I would say to you that we are, that metaphor applies to what we have right now. Uh, and uh, because you can't pass it off. See, the, there's been a luxury over many multiple dozens of generations here is you could pass off the consequences into the future. And that, that clock has run out. 
there's no more sand in that hourglass. Okay. You fix the can all. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to ask you a question. Yeah. Who in our history actually wrote a heck of a dissertation on what you just said? I, I, I don't know. I'm sure it's, it's not an original thought of mine. Well, it uh, happened to be that old redhead from Virginia, Thomas Jefferson. And he made some very mm. profound statements very early on. This was before he got to be president and uh, did the old uh, Lord Acton disease. But he had a great idea before this government got started. Jefferson had some wonderful ideas and he wrote a great theory and expounded on it very eloquently that no generation has a right to bind another generation and especially Ooh, yeah. With debt yeah that yeah. we do not yeah, have the, did a show yes we did i remember yeah. that no go ahead buddy yeah we did we did a show on that a couple of years ago and uh i think the title or subtitle to the show was do do the dead have a right to make laws for the living something of that sort yeah we we did that in a uh, program on dare to think out loud i still have that uh, i still have a copy of that uh, of audio and uh, i'm glad i saved those but that was something you know i i remember when i first read that and it, it was profound because it was like someone hitting you right between the horns and it was something i had never ever heard or considered before and that is you do not have this generation does not have the right to bind the next generation to their principles. Of course, Lysander Spooner went into great detail on this later, but one generation does not have the right to bind another generation. And especially with debt, you do not have a right to go out and make build, uh, make uh, debts, which we are doing every day. We do not have the right to do that and pass it along to our children and grandchildren. How do you call that moral? And why do we why do we tolerate a government that does that? Because we well, do it. I, I think the reason that I'm here is to try to at least have uh, an alternative going forward when it comes apart, because it's obviously coming apart. But and then for the little i really know about the bible it appears to me that that god did allow earthly um governments and rulerships but he did not want his principles thrown out the window by them and that's what this government has done what did he say in first samuel chapter eight when the people when, no, when, when the people demanded a king what did he tell them would be the negative results of that oh taxation war that kind of thing yeah exactly and this is exactly what we keep living over and over and over again all the while out there searching for a magic bean well mike uh Samuel, uh, we got some we got some uh, people here that have spent some time listening to reading and inquiring in the Bible. So I got some questions. I got a couple of questions here I, I come across. 
Is there anywhere in the Bible, in any one place, where it uses the word nice? That you can be a nice person? Is there anywhere in there that it talks about (laughs) a Republican, a Republican form of government? And when it talks about now, hear me out. When it talks about government, any form of any form of government that's referred to in the Bible, they were always referred to as kingdoms, kingdoms, and deriving their just powers. The just governments derive their just powers from the the, the precepts and and uh, God's laws. Those were the just powers. That's part of Romans that the evangelicals leave out. They they say that the way the way the evangelicals interpret it is that any government has just powers. Well, that isn't what the Bible says that I read. So I, I know I've probably thrown some gas on fire there. Have at it. What do you well, think? God God spent a lot of energy um, using that group of people they say three million that came out of egypt got them out of servitude gave them their freedom so you want what he wanted them to do to destroy all the nephilim kingdoms that were in cana that's what he wanted and we didn't do it So and basically, some would say that's the leadership we have today. So basically what we're saying is there's no way we can uh, save the country and expect to be free at the same time. Or as Jefferson put it, those who wish to be both ignorant and free expect what never was and never will be. Well, that's uh, pretty well. And that's one of the things. And I, I have just been blessed, guys to have access to the documents, the things, and it was choices I made, but I'm still blessed in many ways to look at this. And I I know I get uh, emotional. Uh, DW has counseled me about this. I get uh, (laughs) emotional. I get (laughs) upset about these things because I am watching people I love, people I care for, like people in this group, fall for the false promises of government and to think that you know the the other thing uh, you think the 14th amendment makes me angry please don't tell me we have a republic for a government (laughs) every time i see that my blood jumps through my brain a republic prove it and the, the thing of it is, is most people who will tell you that we have a republic, quote, a spurious quote by Benjamin Franklin. Right. Yep. Well, the, the USSR, USSR had a republic. Republic. Mm-hmm. The Chinese had a republic. They so had the had republic, republic. Republic of Vietnam. Uh, they're North republic Korea. North Korea. Yes. They have republics, and they all had constitutions. Where are they? Well, with bills of rights. Well, well, maybe. Yes. Don't forget the DDR, maybe they, comrade. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, Brent. Maybe, maybe those other people understand what a republic is and the uh, so-called Americans have got it wrong. Maybe they don't understand. <laughs> well, there are seven conditions. There are seven conditions which create a republic, and we don't get half of them right. If that. Well, since the bankruptcy in 1933, we're a democracy by demand of the international mofus, etc. Hmm. Okay. Well, it was it. You know, they they did it by deception, but then they over time they've codified it all. It's all been it's all been put into code, so that makes it okay. And this is why the bankers and the real the real sovereign powers, which are the international bankers, own own the government. And the reason they do that is because they know that you. You have convinced yourself to acquiesce to the power, the authority, excuse me, the authority of the government. They, they, the, the, the international bankers don't, uh, the cabal, the cartel doesn't have to be in the open, although they are coming into the open now. They, they have, the, that authority owns the governments because the governments have authority and you acquiesce to that authority it's as simple as that uh there's there's been thousands and tens of thousands of hours and posts and conversations about the deep state the dark the shadow government and all this it's really simple it's called international banking there that's it and their agent back and, in 1787 created this yeah. constitution this corporation so oh, well. i mean the 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 colonies seceded successfully from great britain but they did not escape from the arms or reach of the bank of the banks but the banks already controlled england by then anyway so Governments are basically just asset management corporations for the banks. All governments. Uh, uh, Cal, well, one of the one of the biggest dodges, dodges. is for for people to think of of uh, countries and nations with these labels. And uh, so, I, I mean, it's a it's an old you know, almost worn out quote by Meyer Amschel Rothschild when he says, I care not who makes the laws if I control the issuance of money. He, he I, I mean, uh, this is all I'm saying. It, it really comes back down to that. And all your machinations and grasping at straws uh, are, are never going to alter that until that, until here, here's here's the thing. You can't. It's an oxymoron to think you can have liberty and freedom in a corrupt money system. It, it can never be done. I think so Christ you have was, to address first principles. I think I think Christ uh, tried to really point that out, and 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 saved it for the one time he got to the point where he used a whip and used his physical body to overturn the tables of the money changers. He did it twice. I think he was making a point for us to. The only uh, act of violence. The only act of violence from Jesus Christ. 
Yep. He all, did it first all the rest of it. <clears throat> I was just all say all the rest of it. All the rest of it is what so eloquently Mike phrased earlier is just uh, mental, emotional masturbation. Mm. It feels good. It feels good, but it doesn't do anything. Mm. Okay. It, it, it's a lot of motion, but it doesn't accomplish anything. Nothing you'll never have freedom's child uh, you, uh, to uh, borrow a uh, title from a song by Billy Joe Shaver. You will never have freedom's child with mental masturbation. Daryl, I don't know if it didn't That's do anything because my coach in sports wah, said, don't wah. be doing that before, uh, before we uh, have a meet. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I, I had to requalify my statement. I said it doesn't do anything productive. It, 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 might give you, it might give you pleasure, but it doesn't give you liberty and freedom. No, you're, it's a vice, and you become um, uh, subject to it. Okay, it becomes, it becomes your uh, uh, all these vices, uh, and that that includes that includes money. Money is a vice, and uh, what we're seeing is the sickness of authority and power to this vice. And and uh, let's let's admit it. You know, the people are uh, the the populations of the world are addicts to it. You know, we're dealing with we're addiction we're dealing with addiction behaviors here addictions and uh i guess you know all we're trying to do is a uh, an intervention is that what we're doing guys are we doing intervention work here <laughs> intervention yeah yeah so we have to recognize who the pusher is who the enemy is and if you're doing all well, that it's we, productive we for do them. well i'm yeah. just stating yeah. the fact i know you guys know but yeah well, you know, uh, listen, the well, the addict well, always wants to protect his pusher, doesn't he, Murr? It does, don't addicts? Addicts depend on their pushers, so they, they have sure. to protect. They wouldn't do anything against their, their pusher, would they? Mm. Where would they get their next fix? Mm -hmm. Where would they get their next? Where would they get their next? Where would they get their next universal basic income check if they, if they were to uh, cut themselves off from their pusher? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the, so, yeah, the yeah. thing of it is, is if you have half the country believing that they're free and they're being distracted, how do you get them to understand that they're not free? Suffering. You, don't, you don't. They have Suffering. to ask for it. They have to want it. You can't give them anything they will not accept. And most of them will not accept freedom. They don't want it because it costs too much money. It costs too much of their time that they spend on entertainment. They do not want freedom. They're looking for a quick fix. It makes them uncomfortable. Yes. They think they're free. They don't want to be free. The best free. slave be is a slave that thinks he's free. It, they convince Lincoln themselves they are free. Wrong. I love those free slaves that are walking around with masks on their face. Just a thought. Exactly. I got to go to the club and have my woman's and stuff. I was free. <laughs> well, Can I'll we just, get video, I'll please, Brent? 
Yeah. 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 Aldous and, Julian, uh, and Julian Huxley wrote books on this that you, oh, yes. would, uh, you would love, you would be a slave and, uh, and, and like it. Uh, they would rather have a comfortable and convenient slavery as a dangerous uh, and challenging liberty. Yeah, Ron, who said Wild that? We know which for now. Yeah. Own nothing and, and love it. Yeah. That was a predictive programming of the time. They weren't warning us. Yeah. Previews <laughs> of coming attractions. Same thing mm -hmm. with 1984. And they teach it in school. And now Schindler's List. Mm. A good thing with so, the, um, Mr. Gaddy and Daryl, would be um, if um, people start learning about the articles, too. Because no one studies that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's imperative. Uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> I think what today's conversation, from from my perspective anyway, is pointing out, it takes more than just clinical uh, documentation of facts and figures and an accounting. You actually have to process this information where it becomes internalized as actionable. Uh, this is also consistent with all my experience with training people is that until it becomes internalized, they just imitate. They repeat, they imitate, and they mimic. But they're hard-pressed to actually uh, uh, generate decision and leadership qualities, uh, personal or otherwise, until it's part of their, their internal foundation where it's been internalized. And that it actually takes a little time. And as Mike said, time's running out. So, uh, you know, just giving somebody information isn't going to change their mind. Uh, I've, I've had conversations where uh, I've told people, people don't operate, people don't actually do things, like physically do things things on what they think they do it on what they feel and uh emotion so that's kind of the challenge right there that's that's uh that's the challenge so um and that's a, that's a human thing we're not machines they so you know we're not machines they try to tell you you're a machine and so how can you take and process all this information and then just uh, do it as a machine? If, if information changed people, we turned this thing around a long time ago. It takes a lot more than just, in, just information. Because see, the, I've said before, there's, there's no such thing as mass critical thinking. That's an oxymoron. Mass critical thinking is, is uh, never been... Uh, uh, We've never seen it, but yet people are saying, well, it's going to happen now. Oh, really? I, well, by the way, if, if that's the case, I don't want to be on that airplane. I, I, don't, I don't have a good out. I don't think it has a good outcome. Amen. So uh, that, uh, anyway. that's why it's so, so important for us to have some absolutes that are just places you don't go and you stand there you and mean, you don't cross that you line. Mean principles? You mean principles, Samuel? First principles? Yeah, well, Samuel, I, Samuel. Again, I'm going back to the Bible more than man. Okay. But, yeah. but Samuel, okay. don't forget that the Marxist 
socialist, whatever you want to call them, in their world, there are no absolutes. None. Well, And that, that is it, the it, government we have. In a Marxist world, if you have absolutes, then you can't have progress. Now, how many people even on here would would uh, the reason the reason that you you buy into the propaganda the public relations is because you think you're progressing how many well of you let want me to go back let me throw something here guys just just as an example i know we're running out of time i want to get this one out there what kind of country do we really think we have freedom in where for 40 years you can do what we call infanticide, where you can kill the unborn for 40 some years because your government said you could, and then suddenly your government decides you can't. How can anyone have any confidence <laughs> in a government like that? And well, here, let, um, let, me throw, let me throw this one in very quickly. And uh, by request, Jim, if this is okay with you, next week, we will examine the Articles of Confederation from Article 1 through Article 13. Sounds like a great idea. Thank you, uh, Mr. Gaddy. It's a great question to ask people if they, if they understand how the Constitution came about or the, the basics, you know, that they had to amend the Articles of Confederation. And then ask them, say, well, what was wrong with it? Why did they need to change things? And that might get them thinking a little bit. You know what their answer usually is, Jim? No. And this is what I've been doing this for 40 years. And when people say this, I about lose my lunch. When you will ask people that exact question, why did they feel they had to change from the Articles of Confederation? And they will tell you almost 90% of the time because the articles were too weak. Yep. <laughs> too weak for the federal government. Strong yeah. Yes. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So all they're doing is repeating that uh, 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto that they teach down at the local gulag. Yep. Oh, they were too weak. Yep. Yeah. Well, how do people get more Mike Gaddy? Uh, I don't know. Some people might not want more of me. <laughs> but uh, here is, uh, uh, just to throw it out, uh, I've got a program on RBN on uh, uh, Saturdays, and I also want you folks to please tune in to Murr, who is on RBN as well, and Stephen uh, my good buddy, Stephen uh, Whitener, uh, and tune into those. Uh, Tuesday nights, we do a two-hour lesson on Telegram, and that pretty well covers it for me, guys. Well, you hit the timing right on the head because we're out of it. <laughs> it's okay. been a great show as always, and I really appreciate uh, Cal and Mike and DW and everybody uh, for being here. It's been uh, been wonderful. But we are out of time, so take care of yourselves, take care of your bodies, because it's the only place you have to live. Uh, we'll be back live on Monday, same bat time, same bat channel, and uh, just contemplate what we've been talking about today and see how you can try and convince others that they need to learn about the truth and quit living in a fairyland. Take care, guys. Appreciate you all. God bless. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.